the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's the Wednesday edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And we are here to answer your Bible questions or life questions. Um, Whatever's on your heart and mind, I'll do the best that I can to answer. All you have to do is provide the phone call. Area code 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email your questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to do it is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time with our main number, 340-9585. Because it's Wednesday, the same two announcements tonight. We have our Old Testament Bible study here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio in the book of Isaiah. We're going to be in chapter 8. Uh, all the way through chapter 9, verse 7. Uh, I was telling the church last Wednesday night, and chapter 7 and 8 are kind of gloom and doom and judgment, and God says obey, and they say no, and it's just not a fun thing. But the answer 5,000 years ago was Jesus. And tonight, at the end of the Bible study, in the first part of Isaiah chapter 9, the answer is going to be Jesus. It is the prophecy that all of you are familiar with. To unto us a child is born, referring to the humanity of Jesus. To us a son is given, referring to his deity. And then it describes the world. Paul and I were talking this morning, she was reading these chapters to me, um, that all we can think about is come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Um, We were... I was looking in the news uh, this morning just briefly. I try not to spend a whole bunch of time there. And there was an article about uh, a city in uh, our nation uh, where the entire council, mayor and council members, are all LGBTQ um, in lifestyle and and advocates. And I thought, oh my goodness. And I wasn't going to click on it just to... wasn't that curious? And then I thought, well, I just wonder what city it is. Turns out it's the city where my son and grandchildren live in uh, in California, Palm Springs, California. And I thought, oh, my goodness, Jesus, please rescue our kids. So um, tonight is a surprisingly contemporary Bible study for a word from a prophet thousands of years ago. Uh, tomorrow, of course, Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the program. Uh, so, ladies, it's a day that we set aside especially for you. We'd love to have your input. If you need any encouragement or whatever questions you might have for Paula, she will be here and able to answer. Let's get to the questions that have been sent while we wait for your phone calls. The first question comes from Nacho from our mobile app. Nope, our email inbox, I'm sorry. 
Um, he says, does Amos 8, 11 through 12 refer to the fall of the kingdom of Israel to Assyria? And in chapter 9, verses 14 and 15, to its restoration in 1948? Or is chapter 9 referring to the millennial kingdom? I'm going to get to the passage. Um, um, I got Isaiah up. I got to get Amos up. I don't know why I did that. In chapter 8, Nacho, um, it says, The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine. This is chapter 8, beginning in verse 11. When I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst. Uh, they who swear by the shame of Samaria, or say, as surely as your God lives, O Dan, or as surely as the God of Beersheba lives, they will fall, never to rise again. Uh, this is a reference, you know, there's a, there's a time, and, and this is also a very practical um, and timely word for us. There's a time when um, God speaks to our hearts over and over. He's eager to share with us, and we just don't listen. And at some point, uh, in every life, we get to that point where we've not listened enough, where God simply stops speaking to us. Well, this is a specific reference to a time of 400 years between the last book of the Old Testament and the time that John the Baptist appeared in the New Testament, though John the Baptist is an Old Testament prophet. Uh, it refers to that 400 years where God didn't speak to his people. Um, it's not that God didn't want to, it's just that they shut him out, their hearts became so hard, they persisted in doing things their way on their terms, and God simply stopped speaking. And that's why when you notice when we open in the New Testament and John the Baptist appears, the whole countryside is going out to, to see him because of two things. One, they're curious. Who is this guy? Is he a prophet? Is he the Christ? Who, who, whoever it is. But they knew that God was speaking again. And there was such a hunger for the Word of God, simply simply by deprivation. There was such a hunger that that when the Gospels say the whole countryside went to see him, that was not an exaggeration. That's not hyperbole at all. Um, God was speaking again, and the people were interested in what he was saying. Now, let me apply that, uh, Nacho, because uh, all the time as a pastor, people come in and say, well, uh, you know, I, I want to know if I should take this job, or I want to know what God wants from me, but he's not answering my prayers. I just don't hear anything. Uh, and and almost always when that's the case, it's because they're not responding to what God is telling them to do. You know, God tells us, for example, uh, not to be drunk with wine, and yet there are people that still drink too much, and, and they wonder why God's not speaking. He tells us to flee from sexual immorality. And there's many professing Christians who, instead of fleeing from, they run to sexual immorality and, and expect that God is suddenly going to, you know, understand their needs. Uh, I just had a report from a, a guy who used to go to our church who we warned him that his life was going to, to fall apart, that, that God was simply going to turn from him. Um, he went to another church. It's because he didn't want to not have sex. Uh, he wasn't married. He divorced his wife. And um, um, his response, even to this day, is, well, you know, that pastor said that, that my life's going to fall apart and I'm okay. But isn't, he's not okay at all. And God's not speaking to him simply because he won't do what he's already said. The lesson for all of us, uh, Nacho, for you and for everybody listening, is simply this. If you're not doing what you know God said to do in his word, it is the will of God. We've got all of those references in the New Testament. If you're not doing those things, why would God say anything else to you? Until you repent, confess your sins, ask for forgiveness, and then reestablish the relationship. Well, God had a timetable with his people, Israel. And in the last days, he was... Um, going to send his son, and John the Baptist, of course, we know is the forerunner. Now, the reference in chapter 9 is speaking of the millennial kingdom. So, uh, I will bring back my exiled people, Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. Uh, they will make 
gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. And your question, Nacho, was, is this a reference to the regathering of Israel uh, to their homeland in 1948? Uh, it, it may have been, but we don't have the certainty that Israel is going to remain in the land undisturbed um, forever, n- never to be removed again. We don't know that. that and I, I think it's almost impossibly unlikely that Israel is ever going to be cast out of their their um, land again. But we don't have that specific promise for this time. Here's what it refers to, the Millennial Kingdom. When we do have those very certain promises that Israel will never again, there'll always be a ruler on the throne of David. That, of course, is a reference to our Jesus. And um, they will never be removed. I personally think that in 1948 they came back for good and they will be there when Jesus returns in Revelation chapter 19. Uh, I believe they'll be there seven years prior to that when in fact the, the rapture of the church happens. But until that time, we don't have any very specific purposes. So this is a, a picture way down in the millennial kingdom. One final thing, Nacho. Um, these uh, Old Testament prophecies often have short-term and long-term fulfillment. And uh, tonight in our Bible study, we go from a very short-term fulfillment. One prophecy can be fulfilled within about two years, and then it goes all the way down into the millennial kingdom and all. It's one of the reasons why prophecy can be difficult for some people to to read and understand. So not your great question. Thank you, and I appreciate you studying your Bible. 340-9585. Here's a question from Damon. He says, how do I know if I'm called to a pastoral role or if it's just a desire I have? Uh, Damon, uh, it's a good thing. If it's a desire that you have, it's a good thing. Uh, he who seeks the office of an elder seeks a good thing. So it's 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 there's nothing wrong with saying I want to be a pastor. It was an interesting story. When I first got called to be a pastor, I'm only a six month old Christian and really didn't know what church is all about or what Christ, what, what what pastors were all about. And uh, I remember telling a, a lady, um, uh, friends of ours, that uh, I I think I'm called to be a pastor. And a little bit of time would go by, and I was excited to do that. I was so excited. I wanted to know whatever God wanted me to do. I wanted to do it. And and she she actually told told me, you know, if if you're excited about being a pastor, God didn't call you. I said, why do you say that? And she said, because if God called you, you'd go kicking and screaming. I said, I don't know where you heard that, but I just don't think that's true. Damon, it isn't true. Uh, if you're called to be a pastor, it's like finding a glove that fits your hand perfectly or putting your foot in a shoe, uh, your feet hurt, they're tired, you put your foot in a shoe, and it's soft, and it fits perfect, and you think, oh, this is great. Well, when you know what you're called to do, it is a wonderful thing, and it should generate some excitement. So here's what I would do. I would know that you're called to be a pastor if you have an unquenchable hunger for God's Word. And when I say unquenchable, I mean you just can't get enough of it. Um, if your heart's changed and you're beginning to look at people differently, you want to know if they're saved or you want to be sure that they're saved more than you want to correct them or more than you get impatient or frustrated with them. That That's the, the signs of a pastoral calling. But I can be certain of this. The devil's never going to call you into the pastoral role to teach God's Word. So if that's a desire of your heart, that is almost certainly a desire that God has planted in your heart, and it's something to pursue. I'll add this one other thing, Damon. It's the best job in the world. You're not going to get rich, or at least you shouldn't get rich, and um, your heart is going to be broken a lot. Um, but it is the most thrilling thing ever. I've had the privilege of being the pastor here at Calvary Chapel, San Antonio. We started the church from scratch. We've been here nearly 24 years. And the, the the way my life has been enriched, the people that we've been able to meet and embrace and be embraced by 
uh, is is absolutely thrilling. I I can't imagine doing anything else uh, in life. So, uh, Damon, I'd say go for it. Here is a question from Mark, a hard one. Uh, Mark says, Pastor Ron, what's the best way to manage family time with time in the Bible, prayer, and family devotion? Sometimes it seems like there isn't enough time. Um, Mark, discipline is is absolutely essential. Um, I am a routine person. I do things the same time at the same, pretty much the same way every day. Um, And I do it that way. Even my prayer time, I do it that way so that um, I don't forget. I don't get anything else that gets busy and and crashes it out. So um, I, I think you have to be disciplined. I think you also have to sit down with your family and let them know what your priorities are. And, and you and your wife need to be in absolute agreement. This can't be something that, that you say you're going to do and then you change your mind because something else came up. It's just something that you've got to do. I had a question, I think, last week or maybe it was two weeks ago uh, about the best way to do family devotions. Uh, there's lots of way, different ways to do it, but it has to be done. And the minute you sit down with the purpose through family devotions and it goes for a week or two weeks and then you sort of fizzle fizzle out, um, it, it's going to lose that sense of importance and priority in the lives of your family. So um, you have to make the time and you have to be faithful in that time. Um, and and you, you really, truly need uh, to be consistent. Um, another thing that's important is your own time with the Lord has to be managed. Now, see, Mark, as the head of the family, um, it's not enough for you to be in the Bible with your family. Uh, you have to be in the Bible yourself. God will give you the strength. I, I, I can't explain this because it just doesn't make sense to, to a lot of people. But when you're doing what God wants you to do, and you're being faithful because you love Him, because you, you, you want to obey Him because you love Him, um, God finds time to extend your day. Again, I can't explain that. It's not like the clock slows down or anything, but it, it, God makes you more efficient. Um, um, it's sort of like God is carrying you in the palm of his hand. Every time I get in an airplane and we take off, I always um, prayerfully imagine that the hand of God is under the plane, taking us down the runway and lifting us up. Well, that's kind of how he does. When you purpose in your heart, to learn the Word of God individually, to share it with your wife, to share it with your family. Um, you're going to find the time that you need, the extra sleep, or maybe quantity will, will be replaced by quality. But believe me, God will honor that commitment. Uh, and then you've just got to do it. But it's got to be consistent. Um, make it fun, especially with the kids. Um, but the time with your wife, reading the Word together, that's really, really important. It's not where you're sitting down and you're preaching to her um, or she to you. Uh, it, it's just a, a systematic way to get through the Bible. I, I, I promise you one other thing, Mark, that when you do this faithfully and God begins to bless, you will be eager to find the time, and there is enough time. If you're too busy to do this kind of work with your family, the people God has given you stewardship over, then you're just way busier than God wants you to be. It will make you a better employee. It will make you a better husband and make you a better father. Um, So just make sure you discipline yourself and do it. Schedule these things. It works for me. Uh, Here's an anonymous question. My initial calling, I thought, was to be a pastor but it seems to have changed. Does God ever change his mind? Um, Interesting question. God doesn't change his mind because God has always known what you're going to be. Um, It may feel different to you. Uh, It may just be anonymous that it isn't yet the time. So to say I'm called to be a pastor... um, if God told you that and, and you, you correctly discerned his voice back then, um, then he hasn't changed his mind. Uh, he's just got a lot of work to do in you 
before that happened. You know, when I was called to be a pastor, I shared a, a few minutes ago about that calling. I was a brand new Christian. Um, I knew I was called to be a pastor, but I also had no business being a pastor. I wasn't prepared. Um, I had so much to learn. And so what I did immediately was begin the process of preparing to be what I was called to be. That means studying the Word. That means reading everything I could get my hands on. It meant uh, ministering to people um, in the physical sense and uh, whatever the need was. I had to learn to care for the people that God would bring to me. So the preparation started immediately, but... Um, and, and mine was real fast. I was older, and, and there was a timetable I had that, that uh, I, I didn't know anything about, but God did. But uh, for the time I was called to be a pastor, it was nearly four years before we jumped in a truck and moved from California to San Antonio and started a church. Uh, I knew I needed to go to Bible college, and the Lord led and directed there. So I knew I needed to finish those things, but I was preparing. The fact that you're doing something different now is likely nothing more than preparation for that which you're going to do later. The only thing I would suggest to you is to really dig into the Bible and let God confirm to you whether or not that's still the path you're to walk down. And I think by reading the Word, letting the Lord speak to your heart, I I think that He will confirm to you what your calling is. And if it's not to be a pastor. You'll be okay with that. You'll be okay with that. It just just because it hasn't happened yet, Anonymous, doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. When I first got called to be a pastor, there's nobody in the world who ever would have believed, nobody who knew me who ever would have believed that I was really going to be a pastor ever. And, and yet here I am almost 24 years later, and, uh, and I'm doing exactly what I was called to do. One final thought, if you're teaching a Bible study group, teaching kids at church, look and see, are people growing? Is there fruit from your teaching? I think one of the things that we have to do is be honest with ourselves. If we don't have the gift to teach, then we shouldn't try. Do other things, there's other callings to pursue. But I've had a lot of men over the years, Anonymous, who would say to me, I'm called to be a pastor. And and they had no uh, uh, ability to rightly divide the Word of God. They, they simply, their, their life didn't show the fruit from a personal devotion life. And um, in other cases, their marriages didn't show the fruit um, of the Spirit, the good fruit. Um you can't manage your own household well, how are you going to manage the house of God? That's what Paul says to Timothy. So, um, whatever you're doing now, do it with all of your heart and let the Lord lead and guide and direct you wherever it is that He is going to be taking you. Um, Howard. Ooh, I've never had this question before. I've got three minutes this half, so I can do this one. Howard said, How did you prepare your worship pastor for his role in the church. I'm laughing because I'm remembering the day that uh, I asked my worship pastor to be my worship leader before he stepped into pastoral ministry. Um, and uh, he was the most shocked person in the world. And I, I got to tell you, I, I'm not musical. I have good ear for music, but I can't sing, I can't play, I can't do anything. Uh, I, I very seldom listen to music. In fact, the only time I listen to music is in church. And... Um, um, so, so I'm not qualified to equip the worship pastor. I am qualified as his pastor to equip his heart. And uh, I have been the most blessed pastor in the world, Howard, when it comes to worship leaders. We've been here for almost 24 years, I told you earlier, and uh, I've only had two worship leaders. Uh, both of them became worship pastors. Um, but uh, one was here for 10 years, and then he was called to go out and plant a church, and we sent him out to, to plant a church, and he's still serving God faithfully with all of his heart. And then uh, the worship pastor that I have now, I thought, oh, I've had such a good experience with worship leaders, and other pastors always have terrible problems with their worship leaders. And I said, am I going to have that now, Lord? And as soon as, as uh, our new guy then took over, 
uh, and he's been doing it now, I think, for 11 years, uh, as soon as he took over. In fact, it was the joy of Jesus, his first official service as our worship leader. Uh, literally, as soon as he started playing the guitar and the worship team began, uh, the Lord showed me um, what a great choice he made, not me. So, Howard, I don't know if you're a pastor and you're having problems with your worship pastor or not, but um, if you're having problems, you need to sit down and work them out. Uh, your hearts have got to be divided. I told my worship pastor three things. I told him, first, he's got to live a life consistent with the words that he's going to sing. And I'm going to be watching. i got to make sure there's fruit in his home, fruit uh, that his wife is growing in the Word. Uh, the second thing I told him to do is to uh, just sing. Um, worship pastors shouldn't talk. When they pray, they should talk. The rest of the time, it ought to be singing, preparing us. And and the third thing I said, I'll stay out of your business. Uh, it's your ministry to run. Just be sure you're doing it as unto the Lord. And I've hit the jackpot. Pastor Elaine is our worship pastor. And uh, I wouldn't trade him for anybody in the world. Not only is he good, but his heart is even better. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. We'd love your live calls. 340-9585. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. We've got 30 minutes left in the Wednesday edition of the show, 340-9585. Here's a question from Gene. Now, some of these questions are getting a little personal. Gene says, uh, is staying humble difficult? When you have people who come to hear you preach, uh, as in your case, or or as in your case, when you have a public radio show, uh, Gene, staying humble is difficult for everybody because our our human nature, our flesh, is to uh, is to be proud. Pride was the original sin. It's what caused uh, the devil himself to fall. And believe me, we have inherited uh, that pride gene. Um, uh, every one of us who are flesh. Now, uh, when you're talking, uh, you know, th- this question seems, Gene, to be directed at me. Um, um, and I think staying humble is only possible when when we're we're at the feet of Jesus. You know, I, I think of Peter uh, when when Jesus said, "Put out in deep water, cast your net on the other side." Oh Lord, I've been out here fishing all night and. And, and Jesus said, nevertheless, because you say so, I'll do it. And they brought in this huge haul of fish, and instantly Peter fell down on his face. and said, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Now, Peter, we know, had problems with humility. But in the presence of Jesus, he had no problem being humble. And I think the, the, the human animal, by nature, uh, the only way to remain humble is to, to stay in the presence of of the Lord, uh, Gene. I, I don't have a, a, a ministry, you know, that's known all over the world, and um, you know, I'm still in that sense of, of of amazement and awe, even after all these years, that people actually come to church. Uh, I remember those those early days, getting up in the mornings or or preparing for a Wednesday evening back then, and, and just hopeful anybody would come. And um, now when I get up on Sunday morning, we take a walk, Jesus and I do. Um, uh, I, I just, Lord, uh, I don't have to ask you to bring people. I know they're going to be there. And I'm I'm humbled by that, and I want to remain humbled by that. I also think for, for a pastor, um, you have to remember whose people they are. Um, every every pastor, every preacher's got a uh, had a situation. Somebody comes up and and uh, tells them it's the greatest message ever. Boy, God speaks through you, and all those things. 
And if you're close to Jesus, you just know that that's nonsense. That, that, that I always tell people when they say something like that to me, well, that says more about your heart than about my preaching, but thank you very much. Um, but but I don't think staying humble is difficult because people come to hear you. Uh, I think when you forget what God has done, the privilege it is, that's when you have the problem. And uh, this radio show, uh, if it were TV, it might be different. Um, um, but, you know, I'm, I'm just thrilled anybody tunes in and listens. Paula just said <laughs> in a... Uh, uh, text to my producer and said uh, being in a strip mall keeps me humble uh, Gene I've had times when if you ever tempted to get carried away thinking yourself important uh, I've had times when people come in and kids will throw up on you I had times when other pastors would come in and look at our facility and say this is your church your your carpets are dirty. I tell them we got 135 kids that have lunch on these carpets every day during the week. And um, um, you, you know, it's just I think I think humility is is um, a result of being with Jesus and anything else. Being prideful um, is a result of hanging out with you or listening to your press. I uh, I am the the most aware person in the world. But if God uses me, it's all him and not me. So I hope that answers your question. I, it's, it's a little more difficult when it's personal like that, Gene. 340-9585. Here's a question from Paul. Uh, should Christians and churches support non-discriminatory laws for LGBT people? And would you ever consider hiring an LGBT person in your church? Um, Paul, I don't think that Christians should discriminate against anybody. Uh, We should be men and women who share the gospel with everybody. Uh, I will never support um, um, same-sex marriage uh, because that's a biblical position that we have to take. Um, But I don't think that um, um, LGBT people should be uh, unable to to have equal treatment in employment or have uh, equal opportunities uh, in in uh, houses or um, in just things like that. So discrimination in and of itself is sinful. Now we got to be careful of what's discrimination and what's standing for the word of God. Um, in in answer to your second question. Uh, we would never consider hiring an LGBT person because that person is not a Christian and we only hire Christians. That's the first thing. The other thing is that we only hire people from our church, people that we know. And we don't hire people from the outside. We don't have um, our jobs available in search engines uh, for teachers or for staff people here. Um, We raise them up ourselves. So by the time somebody gets on staff here, for example, if my uh, pastor, who's the principal of our academy, uh, needs somebody, uh, he brings that need to me and we begin praying. And God always provides somebody from the church. He'll be working on somebody in the church. But make no mistake, Christian work has to be done by Christians. And uh, it's not discrimination to say that this is Jesus' church. We follow Jesus' rules, and thus, unless you are a born-again Christian, and then we add a little more to it, unless we know you, and you've proven yourself faithful to the Lord, um, then, in fact, we, we're we not going to hire you. So, um, we should never discriminate, but it isn't discrimination to say, uh, I'm not going to marry somebody who's marrying somebody of the same sex, so I'm going to hire somebody, because this work belongs to the Lord. Let's go to Mary calling from Live Oak on line one. Mary, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. This is Little Mary. Oh, hi, Little Mary. Hi. So I just wanted to call, and um, I didn't catch that last person's um, question that you answered about um, being a pastor, you know, looking for fruit in your ministry. 
Uh-huh. And so I wanted to encourage you because, or, you know, people out there listening, um, I work at the academy. And when our kids have inside recess, um, many of our first graders get out their Bibles and do chapel with their own, <laughs> with the kids within the classroom, they'll stand up and say, he is risen, and they'll say, he is risen indeed. And the little girls will say, okay, turn to Revelation, and then they start saying the verses and then interpreting it in their own way. And I think that's cool because that is fruit of what they're seeing in the teachers' lives and the pastors' lives there at the academy. So I just wanted to say that, and I'll let you go. Thank you, Mary. Paula told me last week, and Troy, I'll get to you in just one second, so please be patient with me, but... Um, Paula told me uh, this week, she said, you know, you got to stop calling her little Mary. Do you know how old she is? And, and I said, I don't know, 36 or something. And she goes, no, she's 39 and a half. And, and I thought, man, time is gone. But Mary has been a part of our church since she was 16 years old. She's worked at the Academy uh, every year, the Academy, 20 years at the Academy, except for the first year. Um, she's been with us a long time. And um, you see, we, we had the privilege of being able to watch people like uh, little Mary grow up and be spiritual giants. So, Mary, thank you for the call. Let's go to Knightsville, Florida, and talk with Troy on line two. Troy, thanks for calling from Florida. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron, how you doing? It's good to hear the radio station is still going strong. It's going well. Thanks, Troy. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I got orders to Florida about four, four or five months ago, so... That's why I haven't called in, but I know that I can call in from anywhere because I had a you, I had a question for you. Okay. Uh, so, in a um, in a new office, and I got some Christian friends and stuff, and I thought that uh, everybody was going to agree agree with me on my pre-trib dispensational premillennialism uh, view <laughs> of the rest. And um, come to find out, there's a lot more post-trib uh, uh, premillennialism. It's hard for me to say that word. Prelim, uh, post-millennialism and millennialism mm-hmm. views out there. And I was just curious if you could give maybe me some guidance or some passages to kind of uh, show my point. I, I know about um, definitely First the Thessalonians and some other scriptures from uh, Revelation. But I wanted to get your insight because I know um, you've got a lot of good insight. And I also wanted to say hi to you and Paula. And um, I'm going to have to stay on the line to listen to your answer this time because um, I don't have a radio handy right now. So I'm just going to take your okay. answer while I hang on the on the line. Thank you, Troy. I appreciate it very much. And by the way, you can um, listen live uh, by going to uh, kslr.com. And that way you can have the uh, the, the program uh, live every day. At, uh, it'll be um, 5 o'clock your time. Uh, but uh, four or five, four four o'clock till five o'clock Texas time every day. That's uh, kslr dot com, and just to say, listen live. My picture will be there, and um, you can you can avoid the picture and listen to the listen to the to the to the answers. Uh, Trey, uh, the, the first thing I'll ask you to do is go to our website calvarysa.com, dot com. And, and you can uh, tell your friends, uh, t- tell them to listen, but go to the Bible study that I do in Revelation chapter 4, the very first Bible study in Revelation chapter 4. I always talk about the rapture of the church, um, why it has to be pre-trib, um, it cannot be post-trib or mid-trib, um, um, all of the pictures in the Old Testament of, of a, a pre-trib rapture of the church. And it's very compelling, and it's very uh, chronologically it makes sense. In the, in 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 that God, this isn't something that's a surprise. Uh, let me say first of all that the most important reason that that the rapture of the church has to be a pre-trib rapture, and it's going to come before the millennium. You're you're talking to people who are amillennial, which means uh, some of them from their church traditions would believe that we're in the millennium now, we're in the thousand reign, a thousand year reign of Christ on earth now. If that's the case, boy, we're all disappointed. Um, others are going to, uh, based on the traditions of the church, have been taught other things. But the most compelling reason is that God cannot judge people that are righteous. 
Remember in Genesis chapter 18 when, when Jesus and the destroying angels appear before Abraham. And he says, Abraham, you're my friend. I'm going to tell you everything. I'm not going to hide this from you. But we've come to see if the reports of the destruction and the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah is as it we were told. And the, the implication there is that they know how bad it is. They're going to destroy it. And because Abraham had people in Sodom, Lot and his family, Abraham began negotiating with God. And he said something very simple. He said, will the righteous judge of all of the earth judge the righteous with the wicked? And and he said it almost incredulously. Like, how is it even possible that God, who is righteous, could judge righteous people? Now, Christians have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are perfect it is no secret, and, and, and even your friends would agree, that the Great Tribulation is the judgment of God, the wrath of God poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. We get that picture from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. When, in fact, God pours out his judgment on people whose lives have already been judged, your life and mine, Troy, their lives have already been judged by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus took the punishment we deserve, the, 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 the punishment that brought us peace was placed on him, Isaiah 53 says. Um, so we're perfect. And that's why First Thessalonians 4 says that we're not appointed unto wrath, but unto salvation. So if God who is righteous could judge the wicked and the righteous together, then God ceases to be just. So that's the most compelling reason. But then you get the chronology and the timelines that are given in the other New Testament passages. So it would take me a long time, Troy, to go through all of them. But go to Revelation chapter 4, the very first study, and the entire, I think, 50 minutes of teaching there is about the rapture of the church, why it has to be pre-trib, and then it follows. We have to be uh, pre-millennial. In fact, the the millennium uh, comes... um, after the return of Jesus Christ to earth in Revelation chapter 19. And when he comes in Revelation 19, he's establishing his kingdom, and then we go into the millennium. But it is impossible to look at, with with honest scholarship, Troy, it's impossible to look at the millennium as anything other than a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth, thus fulfilling all the promises made both to David and to Abraham, and um, I think that's laid out very succinctly in that Revelation chapter 4, very first Bible study. Troy, good to hear from you again. Uh, may the Lord bless you in your service and uh, keep in touch. We like knowing where you are and how you're doing. Thanks for calling. 340-9585. Greg wants to know, Romans 9.6 says that not all Israel is Israel. Can you explain that to me? Yeah, it's a play on words. Now, Romans chapter 9, uh, actually chapters 9, 10, and 11, um, Paul sort of reverts. I call it sort of a parenthetical section of Romans. Uh, he uses Israel as an example to prove the case that he made in the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. It's like he's calling Israel uh, to the witness stand, Greg, and and presenting God's faithfulness and using them as the example of that. Now, when he says not all Israel is Israel, he's making um, um, a play on words. Israel, of course, was the name of the nation. Israel was uh, Jacob's name given by God. Um, but Israel means governed by God. So what he's saying there is that not all who claim to be Israel are governed by God. And then later in the book in chapter 11, he says uh, there's a time until the full number of Gentiles comes in and all Israel will be saved. All true Israel, those who are governed by God. So he's not speaking of national descent or ethnic descent. He's speaking then about the heart of God. So there's a lot of people who say they are Jews in this world. But he's saying, as it's always been the case, and always will be the case, that not all Jews are governed by God. They, they may think, like Saul of Tarsus did, that they're serving God. But Paul says he was zealous, but his zeal was not based on knowledge. So uh, just because somebody claims to be God's chosen people doesn't mean they really are. 
being a Jew by birth doesn't permit them to benefit from the covenant promises of God to true Israel. We might say, Greg, that in church on Sunday, not everybody who claims to be a Christian really is. That's the same kind of idea with Israel. Good question. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, here is a question by from Seth. Pastor Ron, one of my favorite radio preachers has been accused of morality issues and was fired by his church. Is it okay for me to keep listening to him? Uh, Seth, it's certain it's okay, uh, but I'm not sure it's a good idea. Um, let me explain with, with my own issues in personal life. Um, having been a pastor for so many years and getting the opportunity to meet a lot of these famous radio guys, um, you realize that they're not at all like they teach in person. You know, they say great Bible teachers, but they're, but they're, they're really, their hearts aren't really consistent with what they're teaching others. And Seth, I have a really difficult time when I find somebody has clay feet. And I don't mean, I, I don't expect anybody to be perfect, but when I see people who are obviously gifted, but who are guilty of sin, and then we find out they've been living in sin for a long time, if the words that they preached weren't enough to influence them, why would I want to listen to them? So yeah, if you like somebody, you can keep listening to them. However, um, I think there's a couple of things that we need to be aware of. Knowing stuff doesn't insulate us from the problems that people in this world fall into. We're flesh and we're going to be tempted and we can fall. Every one of us can fall. But the real teacher is one who actually applies in his or her own life what they're teaching others to do. I think it is the height of hypocrisy and I have friends, Seth, who have um, who are no longer pastoring, who were wonderfully gifted, blessed Bible teachers. But it didn't keep them from falling. And frankly, I'd rather listen to somebody who, whose heart is right and whose life is consistent with what they're preaching. Just the fact that they may not be as dynamic as, as other preachers are. Uh, I would personally rather listen to uh, to them than to, to the most dynamic speaker in the world if his heart um, isn't right with the Lord, if he's not living uh, what he's practicing. You know, Seth, um, it's been a long time since I've said this, but, but some of you may have heard it. Um, Paula sits in the front row um, every time I teach. She'll be here tonight, she'll be here Friday night, she'll sit in all three services on Sunday. And, and uh, you know, in part, she's ministering to people and, and uh, you know, she knows that's what she's called to do. But uh, I'm visually impaired. I can't see clearly who's in the church. Uh, I can I can see maybe three rows and identify people. If I see anybody and identify them farther back, it's just because I've known them for so long and their 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 shape or form is unmistakable. But but um, Paul is in the front row. Uh, my wife would be the worst poker player ever. She can't bluff. She can't hide her emotions. And so if I wasn't the same person at home that I was declaring myself to be when I'm preaching, I would see that look on her face that says, you hypocrite. Now, Paul is no shrinking violet. She wouldn't let me get to that point. But... But too often, our wives just kind of sit dutifully by while we fall apart and destroy ourselves. Paula would never do that. And when I see her, um, if I see that look on her face, my promise to her and to the Lord is, I'm going to step down. So listen, just be aware and be discerning. Let's go to Teresa on line one. Teresa, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor. I'll I'll say this quickly. Pastor, what is the uh, what is the necessity of having the Old Testament if we have the New Testament, at which we all, mostly all of us, pertain to? So I'll just let that go and let you answer it. Thank you. Thank Pastor. you, Teresa. I appreciate it very, very much. Teresa, the Old Testament is so rich. Uh, here's how I always view the Old Testament. 
I think you're old enough to remember Connect the Dot coloring books, Teresa. And um, you'd, you'd connect one, two, three, four, and, and there'd be an outline of a picture. Uh, the Old Testament is that Connect the Dots outline. The New Testament fills in the picture. And so when you are, are looking at the, the majesty of our Bible, and you see a, a book that, that over 1,500 or so years is completely internally consistent without contradiction, and you see the, the, the outlines of the pictures fulfilled in the New Testament, you get a sense of awe about the, the, the wonder and the beauty and the majesty of the Old Testament as well. Uh, the Old Testament is so valuable to us because what happens to Israel in the physical realm happens to us in the spiritual realm. It's one of the reasons I love to read Judges. I love to read the, the other historical books, First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Uh, I love those books because whatever Israel's going through physically in the natural realm, uh, we who are Christians are going through in the in the in the spiritual realm, and they teach us how to fight. God prepares us as he prepared Israel for battles. He prepares us for battles. So, Teresa, to um, devalue, say, well, we've got the New Testament, we don't know it, is to really, really rob yourself of something of of unbelievable value. So keep reading it. Um, Read Joshua and Revelation together. You want to get excited? Read the book of Joshua and then the book of Revelation together. Read a chapter each day in one of the books. You will be blown away. Hebrews and Leviticus, the same thing. So there's, there's, there's companion books. It's a pure, pure joy. Great question, Teresa. Thank you for calling. Well, we're out of showtime today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Isaiah chapter 8 to 9, verse 7 tonight. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll see you tomorrow at AM 630. The Word. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.